You're listening to Don't Waste Water. If you don't talk about how you're going to attract that 7 or $8 of infrastructure investment, you might as well get out of water industry right now. You're wasting your life. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. We were just catastrophically wrong, and we were catastrophically wrong for about three years. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm very proud to welcome Christopher Gasson as my guest. I got to the point that August where I either had to give up global water intelligence and go back to doing my sort of media consulting business or roll up my sleeves and do it full time and, and find out about water. And it turned out to be the best decision I ever made in life. Christopher is the owner and editor of Global Water Intelligence, the leading publisher and events organizer serving the international water industry. If you're going to run a magazine called Global Water Intelligence, it's global water stupidity not to focus on those things. Water industry, that's an interesting term I'm using quite a lot. But if we dig into it, the water industry is a constellation of small islands that have little, if any, contact and relationship with one another. We even saw last week with Reinhard Hübner and Ski on Water that inside one single company, you can have many different layers that almost never interact because they're acting on totally different verticals within this water sector. So what's really global in this water industry? Well, as Christopher found out and will explain in a minute, so far only two layers, the technology and finance, and quite soon a third one with climate change. And what does that mean? Well, it creates a zillion interfaces between these two separate global layers and all the islands in between. Some of these interfaces might lead to smooth interactions, but in many cases, it's a real challenge to understand each other and align the planets. And it's a repeated riddle to drive the right amount of money towards the fitting project or problem. When you think of it, it's a crazy devil circle. The water industry is capital intensive, but struggles to even pronounce words the like of money, finance, value or investment. This, in turn, acts as an innovation inhibitor and explains why 40 years in the making, we still haven't provided water and sanitation to all. In the following discussion, Christopher will share facts and figures you've probably never heard before and shine a new light on all the paradoxes I just mentioned. It's all about connecting the dots and you'll see that he reveals a quantity of tricks to do so. So before taking off, let me remind you that if you like what you hear, please take a minute to share this episode with a couple of colleagues or friends. Grab their phones, subscribe them to the podcast and tell them there are more gems in the pipe and they won't regret their very expensive free subscription. Come on, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Christopher. Welcome to the show. Hi. When you're in that game, like I am now since 80 episodes of discussing water topics and uh, interviewing people in the water industry, there is one godfather of all of that. And somehow I'm receiving today the godfather 
So I'm a bit, you know, in my small shoes and wondering if I'm going to raise good questions to the specialist of kind of edgy questions sometimes. So there's a lot I'd like to discuss with you today about you yourself, about global water intelligence. But that all starts with my good old traditions, and that is the postcard. And you're sending a postcard today from Oxford. So what can you tell me about Oxford, which I would ignore by now? What can we say about Oxford? Well, it's obviously old and full of university, and it's incredibly expensive. So during lockdown, all my staff have found excuses to leave Oxford. Some have gone to South Africa, some to Norway. Uh, we've become a very spread out company. And me and maybe one or two others have been soldiering on here, coming into the office every day. But uh, otherwise, we've become a very dispersed company. And Oxford is much less part of it. <laughs> so we'll come back to the dispersed aspect of the company, because I think that's also something which I'd like to understand about your company. But right before that, I'd like to get to know a bit better your path. Because when I was preparing for that discussion, I found out that you've been publishing 670 articles on Global Watch Intelligence. And that is just probably the emerged part of the iceberg. There must be some others which are still hidden or which are in other parts of your galaxy. I found also that you've acquired Global Watch Intelligence in 2002. But what I don't know is what you've been doing before that. Okay, so I, I started here in Oxford at, at the university. I studied politics and economics. And I spent a long time trying to figure out what to do with that and ended up in journalism. And actually, I was working for a publication on the publishing industry, which got me interested in publishing. And from there, I got into you could call it a boutique investment bank, which did buying and selling sort of media businesses. And I actually wrote a book called Media Equities, Evaluation and Trading. So I'm sort of not coming at it from a, a water angle. I'm coming at it from really a, a publishing angle. And essentially what happened was I sort of split up with the other people who were in this uh, sort of M&A business and decided to go off on my own. And there was this little magazine for sale. It uh, had 162 subscribers and I bought it for 17,000 pounds. And from there, I, I thought I was just going to do this as a sort of side job while, you know, working as a sort of consultant as a sort of the media area, valuing businesses on the side. And I managed to lose all my money on it quite quickly. <laughs> because what I discovered was that the part of the water industry that we were covering, which was the international private water market, was actually falling like a stone. And our main selling point was tracking projects for private investors in water. And all of our project updates were project cancelled or project delayed. Because you know, after this sort of fantastic time during the 1990s, when there'd been this idea that sort of mature utilities in, in Europe should recycle their cash flows into fast-growing utilities in emerging markets, the sort of East Asia crisis followed by the Argentine peso crisis had actually completely reversed the cash flows by the time I bought Global Water Intelligence in 2002. So the subscriptions kept falling and I got to the point that August where I either had to give up Global Water Intelligence and go back to doing my sort of media consulting business or roll up my sleeves and do it full time and, and find out about water. And it turned out to be the best decision I ever made in life. 
the next thing which I did was I went to the International Desalination Association conference in the Bahamas, and I discovered that this was also an international business, desalination, where the supply chain was incredibly international. And there was also some private finance involved. And unlike the sort of international private water market, which was going backwards, this market was really going forwards. So I went back from that conference and we launched our desalination project tracker. And from that, we then sent it out to the 1,000 or so people who had been at the International Desalination Association Conference, and we got 100 subscribers, just like that. So doubling your subscription, roughly. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were then sort of in the business and we launched a report on the desalination market, which sold incredibly well. And we used the money from that to buy a database of desalination plants from Klaus Wangnick, which became Desal Data. And we used the money from that to buy water desalination report and became sort of completely dominant in sort of desalination, which I guess is the most international part of the water industry because it's high technology and something where the contractors are working all over the world. And also it involves money. And it's always been my feeling that there are two things which are international in water. One is money and the other is technology. And if you're going to run a magazine called Global Water Intelligence, it's global water stupidity not to focus on those things. That's what we're about. And we've been building out, you know, from desalination into other areas of advanced technology areas. I mean, initially it was water reuse and wastewater treatment and then sludge and then digital and basically been following the money and following the technology around the world. And I guess now we're finding that there's a third thing which is international in water, and that is climate change. Now I'd say we're, you know, we're really pushing forwards on sort of those three different themes to sort of bring the water world together so that it works better. There's really a lot I'd like to unpack in what you just said, which is going to be a lot of the meat we'll have on the bone for the deep dive. But right before, I'd like to explore a bit this aspect of money, which you've, you've just mentioned. I can share you something which happened to me. I was giving a conference in a French university. My conference was about economy and water. And I was expecting lots of questions at the end. But at the end, what I received as questions were more like critics. Like I was qualified as serving the big capital by compromising water with money and water with economics. And I thought we had passed that point, <laughs> but I was wrong. I was absolutely wrong. And when preparing for our discussion, I read your very first paper on global water intelligence, which is from 2002. And you are saying exactly that. You are saying there is this problem between water and money, which is always tricky and people have some difficulties to wrap their heads around the link between water and money. So does that mean nothing has changed for 20 years? I don't know. I think that this link between water and money is really why global water intelligence has grown so well. I mean, essentially, most people or most other sort of organizations which bring people together in the water industry are afraid to talk about money. And for me, that's the main reason why water doesn't work. 
actually, water is immensely capital intensive. For $1 of revenue, you need 7 or $8 of infrastructure invested. And if you don't talk about how you're going to attract that 7 or $8 of infrastructure investment, you might as well get out of water industry right now. You're wasting your life. It's the first time I hear that figure. It's one of these things that we do. I mean, it, it's obviously a conflation of both water and wastewater infrastructure. If you've got a utility which is doing both, that makes sense. And it's also an issue of how that money is actually invested and charged for. So there are a number of variables in it. But that's the sort of ballpark thing. If you're looking at an advanced utility with water and wastewater, you've got massive infrastructure investment. Take, for example, in Japan. In Japan, the, a utility will typically have $40,000 of infrastructure invested for every connection that they have. And how much are they charging each year? For a, uh, you know, they're not charging $4,000 a year for a connection. So there's a big variation on it. I mean, Japan's a bit of an outlier because they have extraordinarily sort of efficient networks. You know, they have earthquake-proof piping and things like that. But there is some variation there. But uh, if you're talking about a top-end thing, you, sh you need a lot of capital in this. And, you know, this is the reason why SDG 6 has been so difficult to achieve. If you're going to have the whole world with a piped potable water source in their home, and you're going to have safe sanitation, you know, with safe waste disposal, you're talking about significant infrastructure investment. And if you have a whole load of people dancing around saying, we don't like talking about capital and water, anyone who talks about capital is on the wrong side. Those people are actually killing people. You're mentioning significant investment. I had this discussion with David Lloyd Owen, which you know very well, on that microphone about his book, Global Water Funding. And in his book, he's citing a global water intelligence figure, which is, if I recall right, $4,000 billion of investment, which is what represents water and sanitation for all. Some of it is new infrastructure. Some of it is refurbishing the existing infrastructure. But that is the size of the bill we are discussing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of these things that the sort of water's work is never done. I mean, if you look at America, for example, where they're getting concerned about PFAS or per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, you know, there's a huge amount that you can put in to stop those sorts of things getting in your water. We are talking big money, however you look at it. And what I would say is that some countries have got mechanisms for getting that money in. We in the UK have a mechanism which happens to involve the private sector. In Germany and the Netherlands have mechanisms which involve municipalities being able to charge cost recovery pricing for their tariffs. And then there are a lot of countries which just don't have a financial mechanism to get money into water. That's the problem. I mean, in Italy, for example, they voted against having cost recovery tariffs. And so, surprise, surprise, you've got raw sewage floating in the Arno going through Florence. You get what you pay for, and you need to have that mechanism. Now, Deng Xiaoping said, you know, it doesn't matter whether the uh, sort of cat's black or white. What matters is whether it catches mice. It doesn't matter whether you've got a private uh, system or a public system, but you need to have a system which gets capital into water. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. I think from the way you're expressing all of that, we can already feel that you're not just an observer of that market. You try to have your, your tone of voice and to have your opinion and to bring that across. 
to quote you, you're saying that a magazine without values is a very dry thing, which brings me to a very simple question. Is Global Water Intelligence still a magazine? It's currently a magazine, but I think that over sort of lockdown, fewer and fewer people have actually been reading it as a magazine because they're not going into offices and so forth. They're reading it much more as something which is online. And we are going to be changing the way we present things to re reflect that uh, you know, over the next couple of years. But really, I guess it's a way of bringing people together who care about the future of water. And we don't just do it in the magazine. We also do it in our events. And so we're sort of restarting our sort of Global Water Summit series in May. And, you know, we've been setting up sort of uh, net GWI networks and, uh, you know, online meetings and so forth. But so it is, it is it's both a mouthpiece or a soapbox, <laughs> as well as a, a news source and a, an information source. I mean, actually, Now, our water data business is, in fact, bigger than our uh, global water intelligence business. And it's also bigger than our events business. So we are quite a substantial seller of data to the water industry. That's what exactly what, what I was going to say. My company, GF Piping Systems, is a customer of Global Water Intelligence. And I guess much more a customer of GWI water data than of the magazine. The magazine is very interesting, has always lots of interesting stories inside. Nevertheless, when you're doing due diligences in M&A or you're trying to do business development and decide what's the next country you want to focus on, the data brings even more value. So that is a bit more of the product that we are using. And that's not just my, my personal use case. I'm wondering in this data, how do you gather that data? And what's your methodology without revealing the secret source? But what feeds this database? We talk to a lot of people. I mean, I think that that's the most important thing. But, you know, obviously there's data out there and, you know, some of it just needs to be collected and turned into data. So, for example, you know, with desalination, each project that we track becomes a piece of data about the future of that market and how fast that market is growing and where it's going. And we keep track of those things on a, on a weekly basis. And that builds into a forecast of the future of that market. And we also track, you know, wastewater treatment projects and, and other, other things. So you can see there that the information is out there. It's just we're investing in collecting it. Then there's other things where, for example, We've this week been sort of slightly battling with the UK Competition Authority or Competitions and Market Authority in that the Veolia and Suez merger has been objected to by the Competition and Markets Authority. And they have bought one of our reports, which says that Veolia and Suez have a 60% market share of the industrial water outsourcing market in the UK. And this is something that we sort of determined as a result of talking to people in the market. You know, you talk to the competitor and say, well, how much do you think their market share is? And then you talk to the others and you say how, you know, and you, you triangulate something like that. And it's quite time consuming and difficult. And, you know, now we find that this thing that we were researching a few years ago has become incredibly important for this merger. But, uh, you know, that's the way life goes. We can't know everything. But we can try and put ourselves in the position where we know more than other people, or we know everything that is 
published and we have insights of our own from talking to insiders. When you're giving big numbers, big market estimates or a technology's potential or the development of a technology, how accurate or inaccurate are those numbers? I know you're going to say they're accurate, but... No, I'm not going to say they're accurate. No, no. What I'm saying is the market needs forecasts and data. But at the same time, most intelligent people know that it's impossible to say what the future is going to bring. So, for example, somewhere in water data, you'll find a market forecast for the Ukraine. That market forecast is almost certainly wrong. <laughs> but when it was made, it was made on the basis of the data that we had about investment going into the sector and commitments that were being made and whatever official sources of, of information about spending on water uh, that there were in the country and so forth. That then you won't find, for example, a, a forecast for sort of plastic pipe sales in the Ukraine. But you may, on the basis of various, you know, rules of thumb and, you know, how these things typically break down, be able to come up with an idea of if this is the total spend and this is what they're spending it on, this might be the spend, total spend on pipe in that country. You mentioned that you're triangulating the data. So I guess that gives you a bit more accuracy, but I can share you my personal example some years ago. I think it wasn't GWI, it was another market research company. I can't remember the name now, but they were calling me every quarter and they were like, okay, you're in the business of selling ozone treatment systems. What's the size of the market? How much did you sell? What do you expect to sell in the next month? And, you know, I was a very optimistic sales guy. So... <laughs> I was taking all my projects and I was giving myself a 100% win rate, of course. And on top of which, I was expecting all the projects I was working on to come into truth, which means I was probably overestimating the market by a three to five factor. So how do you factor out? Oh, yeah, exactly. So we've had that problem. So as I say, we started off in this forecasting business in the desal area. And for the first sort of four years or five years that we forecast, we published forecasts on desalination, the market was always like twice, it grew twice as fast that we had thought. And we looked at this and we thought, okay, right, there must be a lot of projects that exist that we're not seeing. And therefore, we must add in this sort of idea of the sort of what we call the anticipated additional. And we built a model it, on an iterative basis. You know, we thought, okay, right, this is why we were wrong last time. So we need to get right this next time. And each time, the market was more bigger than we could imagine. And then sort of 2010 came, which was the year that the desal market changed. And we were just catastrophically wrong. And we were catastrophically wrong for about three years. And we had to completely rethink our approach to this forecasting business. Because previously, we had taken it on the view that, okay, if these things are on the drawing board, this is sort of what's happened in the past and uh, you know, so forth. And we had to be just a lot more critical and sort of fast moving on these things. And we also, you know, one of the things that people often sort of don't understand is that there's a huge difference between a market which is essentially a capital expenditure market and a market which is an operating expenditure market. An operating expenditure market is generally one which you can expect to sort of roll forward in one way or another. So 
let's say you're selling sort of iron exchange uh, resins, there's a certain number of those installations already there. And most of your business is going to be about selling into those installations. And then the market will grow as more people install iron exchange systems, but it will also be affected by people taking away systems that say replacing an iron exchange system, or at least an extensive iron exchange system with a sort of RO system with a maybe just a mixed bed polishing step or something like that. So with an operating sort of expenditure market, there's always an amount of momentum in it, which makes it relatively easy to say, oh, it's going to carry on like last year, but it might move in this way or that way. With a CapEx market, these things actually just jump around all over the show. And one of the things that, you know, we sort of had assumed about the diesel market was that because the world is running out of water, not actually running out of water, but because more people are living in places where there is water stress and the quality of available water is declining and so forth, we had sort of assumed that in the long term, desalination is something which will just grow and grow. Whereas, in fact, it's something which moves in fits and starts, that it peaked in 2007, and then it didn't recover that peak until last year or this year. It went right down to less than 20% of the peak during the trough. And it's very difficult to say to people, yeah, desalination is a great market, when Actually, um, you're looking at it, it's falling year on year. But that's sort of the nature of a CapEx market, that it's driven by sort of priorities. And when, when there is a priority, then the spending will happen. For example, in California with the, you know, the big drought, that didn't actually lead to spending on desalination, but it did lead to spending on water reuse, for example. One has to sort of have a model of the way you think about these different kinds of customers. And generally, the way that utilities work is that they're driven by priorities. This is why why so many people find it difficult to sell into that market, because they think, I've got this really brilliant piece of technology, everyone should want it. But actually, unless the boss man or the mayor or whoever it is is saying, right, this is what we need to be doing, then you're not going to be able to do it. So, for example, you might have one minute people sort of panicking about PFAS and you can sell them a whole you know, uh, treatment system to deal with that. And the next minute, somebody will say, well, actually, we've got to reduce our carbon footprint. And, you know, that you know, probably goes completely against taking PFAS because taking PFAS out is a very energy intensive thing to do. So, you know, you get these things going backwards and forwards and understanding how these utilities work and how decisions are made is really important to the whole thing. But that means that most of what you're monitoring is the utilities world. So you're trying to follow because that's how the water sector is designed. But I guess that your customer in turn is maybe not the utility. So who's your typical user? Well, I mean, I guess that this is, this is slightly the way that we've sort of set things up. So GWI is there for the supply chain and for the financial world. However, we have also got a not-for-profit arm of the, of the business. It's actually a separate company. It's called the Global Water Leaders Group. And this was a sort of initiative that we set up because we felt that 
if we were in the business of trying to make the world of water work better, we really needed to be working with these leaders, the end users, much more closely. And that this sort of extraordinary sort of way things work in water, where there are a few really good utilities. You know, here I'm talking about, say, Singapore or Amsterdam or Los Angeles or whatever, who are completely on top of their job and they can sort of wake up in the morning and they can think, wow, how can we be even better? But there's a mass of terribly unfortunate underperforming utilities who sort of wake up in the morning and you know the best they can hope for is to solve the mains break before the six o'clock news, that they're really struggling. And the same is true also in the developing world where something like 85% of the money going into sub-Saharan Africa goes to less than 20 different utilities, i.e. there's some utilities where the uh, development finance community look at and they say, these guys really know what they're doing. And if we give them money, they will take a big step towards solving SDG 6. And there are other utilities who you know donors and lenders look at and they say, if we give these guys money, it's just going to leak out. You know, They're just losing money on everything. Their customers are robbing them, their staff are robbing them, the management are uh, incompetent, makes no sense to give them money. So we set up this Global Water Leaders Group with a guy called William Mahawi, who used to run one of these sort of super successful utilities in Uganda as the executive director, essentially to try and bring together the, the top performing utilities and then build out their experience to the rest of the world. And so I mean, after a few years, we, we then launched this uh, concept of the leading utilities of the world, which is those are the top performing utilities. There are about, I think, uh, 54 of them or something chosen by their peers on the basis of their performance and so forth. And, you know, that's how we engage with the, the end user. And I guess we've also been doing the same thing on the industrial side with our corporate water leaders group, where we're looking for you know, people on the industrial water side who are committed to water positive or ideas of really getting water stewardship right. But if I want to be blunt and to simplify everything, what you just explained is your way of giving back to this utility and to support, generally speaking, the water community, but where you're making your, your money and every company has to be profitable. It's really on this supply chain support and on this data that you're gathering, collecting, Well, you could, you could say that, but I'd say, you know, it is, I mean, you know, quite uh, cynically, I mean, you can't run a successful conference like the Global Water Summit without having the sound of two hands clapping. You need to have the customers and the supply chain there. Although it may look like this is us giving back. And I, I know, I, I, as I say, I have reasonably strong ideas about giving back in water. I, I, you know, I feel that actually it's part of this idea that water should be a gift rather than, you know, should be something which is uh, commercial. It is one of the problems in the whole, whole world. I don't see it as giving back. I see it as part of, I suppose, doing well from doing the right thing. I'm trying to be the devil's advocate. I agree with you, said differently, but I need to be a bit scratching. So that's why I was asking this, this element of, of giving back. You have strong opinions and I've been even contacted in between the time where we set up for this interview and the time where we're actually recording. I've been contacted by people and I mentioned that I was going to discuss with you and all of them say, oh, that guy has strong opinions. So you're really known for that. 
But out of the 670 papers which you've published, would you say that there is one where you were wrong? Like really wrong? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that we have been wrong about a number of things. And I've certainly changed my mind about things. I mean, there's one where I think it was a bit outspoken. But if you read the article, you can see where I'm coming from. I mean, let's say something like, when I hear the word stakeholder, I reach for my gun, uh, <laughs> which uh, it, that was a, a little bit sort of tasteless. But, you know, basically what I was trying to say is that in that particular instance was that we need to think of water consumers as customers. You know, if you just think that they're stakeholders who are there, for example, just to receive the, the benefit of water without ever making any contribution to it, that is part of the problem. There has to be a mechanism to get money into the sector. And if you just say, right, these people are stakeholders because they're beneficiaries of this and somebody else across the ocean has to put up the money to make it work. I mean, it's just completely wrong. You know, it's absolutely going to fail. We need to believe that water is worth paying for. Because if you just say to people, right, the only way you, you know, one billion people in the world who don't have, uh, you know, uh, access to safe water, you guys, you've got to wait until the rich world remembers that they ought to give you give money to uh, support you getting water before you get it. It's completely disempowering and it's not going to get them anywhere. There has to be this feeling that water is worth paying for and it is a good. And actually, I mean, I did a, some work for the World Economic Forum a few years ago on this called sort of New World Models for Water Access. And, you know, we looked at the cost of good water and we looked at the cost of bad water. And when I say the cost of bad water, I mean not the direct cost, but the cost in terms of the time it takes to sort of go off and fill a container from a, a river or an unimproved distant source or... Those two hours a day, how much, uh, I mean, the sickness is... Sickness is, uh, exactly. And we added up all these costs. And, you know, we used the sort of World Bank methodology for pricing these things. And what we discovered was that actually good water pays for itself. If you can get a piped potable source of water, you save a lot of time, you save a lot of health, and you also save a lot of energy in that, um, you know, a pipe is a sort of iconic invention for moving fluids in the same way that a wheel is an iconic invention for moving solids. And if you're not using pipes, I mean, this is an advert for GF, I guess. <laughs> if, you, if you're not using pipes, as I say, you're using a lot of extra energy in the whole system. We should have confidence that water is worth it, that the customers who get it will actually be better off overall as a result of it. And if that involves contributing financially to it, then they should do so because, you know, it, it's got a value. Now, the trouble we came to, which is quite interesting on this study with the World Economic Forum, was actually on the wastewater side, where we discovered that here, pipes don't actually pay for themselves. Um, if you have good fecal sludge management and you're in a low-income country, because the sort of health costs and the time saving and so forth is calculated on the basis of income, you're actually better off emptying a septic tank or doing good fecal sludge management than having a piped 
sewer system, which is very expensive to lay and then has a sort of uh, wastewater treatment plant on the end of it, that actually wastewater treatment only pays for itself when you have an average income per head of about $3,500, which is quite, quite an interesting problem. Paying for wastewater is an interesting challenge. But on the drinking water side of things, I guess the problem that we are meeting here is that you say it pays for itself. Yes, if you zoom out and you take the overall society as the stakeholder, sorry for the term, but if you go down to the utility, it's more difficult because they won't be directly benefiting from the fact that people don't have to travel two hours to get some water. They won't be directly benefiting that the hospital is half empty because people stop dying from waterborne diseases. So there is a societal cost, but if you can grab the benefits of your action of bringing water, then it's more difficult to collect the money which is associated, even if economically speaking and on the zoomed out picture, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think what I'd say is that history shows that if you can provide a good source of water, that people will be prepared to pay for it. You could say it's just sort of culturally specific what people are prepared to pay. So for instance, in Africa, it's quite common for tariffs to be in the sort of, I mean, I can't remember the exact figures, but you're probably talking about an average tariff of around 60 cents a cubic meter in Africa. Whereas in South Asia, you're probably talking about an average tariff of closer to sort of 10 cents a, a cubic meter. And then you think, actually, India is a reasonably rich country compared to a number of these, I mean, somewhere like Uganda. And you might be paying sort of 80 cents or, you know, 90 cents a cubic meter in, in, in Uganda. Um, and, you know, then you ask, why is it that the Uganda National Water Sewage Company is actually a hell of a lot more effective at serving all of its catchment area than, uh, you know, some of these Indian utilities, which completely fail. And, you know, you have to come to the conclusion that the fact that in Uganda there is a tradition of paying for water has got an awful lot to do with the fact that they have a better water system than a lot of Indian cities. You're called global water intelligence, but that features global water. And you've explained how there are some things which are really global, but is water really a global topic? Because you're comparing now India and Uganda, and those situations are, by many aspects, very different. And it's not because we have, now I'm really making cliches, but it's not because we have more water on that end of the world and less on the other end of the world. That's the other balance will show that we have an equilibrium, but at the end of the day, you have people with too much water and other with too few water. But isn't it somehow a fallacy to look at water as a global thing? Well, I mean, this is it. This is why I say, you know, money is global and uh, technology is global, but water isn't. You know, most people drink the water that falls in their head. And, you know, it's a sort of rather sort of crazy idea, this sort of global water in that, I mean, I sort of think about this sometimes when you hear about these people like, you know, Singapore or other countries setting up these sort of water hubs, you know, the idea that, that everyone's going to come to them to find out about water technology and so forth, as if there are some parts of the world which have never thought about water, whereas in fact, everywhere in the world has had to come up with a solution to water from the very beginning, because that's what it means to live in society. The problem is that this is completely sort of fragmented and atomized. If you just leave people to develop water services on their own, 
it's quite likely they'll end up with things which are incredibly inefficient and so forth. And you know, what they need to do is, is actually understand how other people do things and how they might learn from them. But they always need to adapt those sort of learning points to their own culture. Singapore has got a quite a unique situation. I mean, it's obviously very urban and it's got, um, I mean, I remember going there once and being told that they'd had a terrible drought. And, and I asked them, so, you know, how long has it been going on for? And they said, it hasn't rained for nearly a month. <laughs> As you say, these things are very, very local. Um, And, you know, but people can pick these things up. You know, you can see somebody doing something in one place and take it elsewhere. So talking of these elements, which are this time global, you have the money and we've discussed the money. I have a last question on the money aspect. It sounds to me like something's happening over the past, you'll tell me, five years, 10 years, maybe, with all this ESG investment, impact investment, which is now sometimes even flooding some areas of the water industry. Is that something which has some rational for you? Or do you also look with a puzzle look at some of the valuation of some water companies? I don't know. When you say uh, ESG money coming into water, I mean, I guess there are two ways of looking at this. One is funds like uh, the uh, Climate 2 Fund or Water Equity, which are essentially impact funds which are looking at putting money to work in water infrastructure in the sort of SDG6 countries. And then on the other side of things, you've got things like the share price of Veolia and and so forth, which, you know, is an ESG stock to invest in. You know, they've got a strong story about leading the ecological transition and ESG investors are very keen to sort of put their money into that that, that kind of stock. I mean, I guess that what I find most interesting is actually the former thing, the sort of impact investment coming into or wanting to get into the, the water sector. Because this is sort of, you know, although these people are trying to do good in the world, they are essentially private investors. And, you know, historically, there's been this big, as you've said yourself, this big hoo about, you know, having capital and private capital getting into water when it's too important for that and so forth. But I think that this is a completely different approach. And I think that it would be wrong to sort of turn these people away because they happen to be raising private funds as well as public funds. Because, you know, ultimately, all money comes from the capital markets, whether it comes from the World Bank or government borrowing or whatever. You know, you have bonds and people buy bonds or you have shares and people buy shares and or you have investment products and people put money into that. And, you know, all money is just churning around in the financial markets and it's just really a matter of the instruments that get you there. But the big issue in this sort of SDG 6 finance thing is how do you actually increase the number of opportunities to deploy this capital because there's a lot of money wanting to get in, but there are very few, as I mentioned earlier, bankable utilities. Utilities you'd think, hey, we could give them some money and they'd do a lot with it. And that's something which we're working on trying to expand with the Global Water Leaders Group. We worked with the GIZ people in Germany to help them set up this uh, Urban Water Catalyst Fund, which aims to essentially turn around utilities so that they become uh, bankable. We're actually running a workshop on sort of bankability and how to sort of 
how to turn utilities around. Um, I think the IFC are another organization who are interested in that. And I think that that's a, an important priority. And it's all very well getting the ESG money interested. It's creating the opportunities for ESG money as well that we need to do. Let me come back to GWI as a company. How big are you today? How many people are working for GWI? We have about 70 people in total. And you said you're dispersed because yeah. of COVID, not because of COVID, because of a combination of both? I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, some of these things, I mean, our sales director has been in the Czech Republic for some time. And I, you know, as I say, our editorial director moved to Norway during lockdown. You know, we also have an office in, in, in Shanghai and in Austin, Texas, although our lady who runs the office in Shanghai has actually been relocated to Kunming. And we have uh, sort of correspondents around the place and, and other sort of friends who help us out. So, yeah, we are pretty global. And given your global size, can you afford to have a water company which is mad at you? <laughs> um, let me just say, one of the reasons why I got into this publishing, you know, to, back into publishing from M&A, was when you're doing sort of investment banking, you can't afford to piss people off. You know, you only do sort of five or six deals in a year. And if you piss off one of these clients, it's really bad news. Whereas we've got thousands of clients now and we can piss them off. And I think that obviously... There are some times when we say things that other people don't like. I think that we probably created a few enemies at uh, Veolia in our coverage of the Veolia and Suez uh, merger. I think that uh, what we are saying, we'll see how it's borne out. I mean, personally, I think both Veolia and Suez today are great companies and they're both going in very different directions. And I think that one does have to put the past behind us and that the old Suez no longer exists. Veolia has a great future and the new Suez also has a great future, but they're going to be going in different directions. The new Suez has got a lot of capital behind it and it can, it can afford to be investing in infrastructure and so forth. The new Veolia has got an extraordinary mission as the sort of leader in this ecological transition, linking together both waste and energy and doing it with a fully global footprint. And I think they're both exciting journeys to be on. And I hope that the uh, people at Veolia will let bygones be bygones. I mean, it's water under the bridge and this is what happens. You mentioned Suez and Veolia, which is one of my recurring topics. It's also the other occasion where I had someone from GWI on that microphone with Sébastien Mouret. So I have a one-sentence question for you, which is aiming for a one-sentence answer because I couldn't do it myself, so maybe you can. Why did Veolia acquire Suez? Because it could. <laughs> okay, then we have the same answer. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that we can go through all the different arguments and so forth. I can see where they're coming from. I think that they will create an interesting asset. I mean, the shareholders are very much behind the whole thing. So one can't really sort of, you know, because it could. And, you know, it has increased the uh, shareholder value. I mean, that's it. I mean, okay, you want me to say when I've been wrong? Well, I'll say I'm wrong in three years' time. I will be vindicated in my pre 
merger coverage if the Viola share price is actually below the acquisition price in three years' time. I will not be vindicated if it continues upwards as it has done. And, you know, this is the nature of being a pundit. Sometimes you get things right, sometimes you get things wrong. And one needs to have good reasons and, you know, get people to understand that, you know, one's not God. All one can do is pontificate, as my wife says. We are recording that at the beginning of, of March 2022. So if you're listening to that in the future, that you have a, a, a set point of where that engagement of three years ahead, it's going to grow, is starting. But that wasn't my, my aim with that question. In the February release of GWI magazine, you are talking about SOAR, which would be up for sales. And I'm wondering, how do you come up with such a story? Is someone from Equity giving you a call and say, by the way, no, I no, want to I mean, make you something sorry, else? Sorry, that one's just one of these things was, which sort of got out there. I mean, you know, Reuters did the, the, the hard work on that. And we have our ear to the ground on a number of other things. We can't claim credit for that one. And, you know, it, it may be, it may turn out not to be true. I mean, I mean, when Reuters first came up with it, they suggested that this... Uh, Reitman Group was going to buy it. And then they realized it was Rethman Group, i.e. Raimondis. And they, they, and they changed their story between the morning and the afternoon. <laughs> and so one doesn't, you know, but you know, they must have felt there was something there. I mean, I had understood that EQT were going to be in there for a bit longer. But, you know, I can certainly see why this might be a good time to sell Saw because they're just doing fantastically well. You know, Menno Holtman on the industrial side is an absolute dynamite. Dynamo, and um, you know they've done fantastically well in, in Saudi Arabia, winning sort of two of the, or is it three of the contracts there? So they are something that a private equity person might say, "Hmm, this is starting to ripen quite nicely." On the two first seasons of that podcast, I've been asking in my rapid fire questions at the end a simple question: What is your source that you recommend to keep up with uh, the water trends and water news? And uh, even though it was for the full two seasons, sometimes some episodes they didn't ask the question. So I had 38 guests which got the question. And out of these 38, 31 cited GWI, which makes you actually the second source which they recommend, the first being LinkedIn. But I would say the first dedicated water source which they recommend. How is that good or bad, dangerous or an opportunity as a, as a position in the market to be like this go-to source because many eyes are on you? And do you have any competition? We don't really have a competition in the, the, the magazine area. I mean, I guess though that we still in some ways just sort of scratch the surface of the market because there are an awful lot of people who still don't subscribe to GWI. So that's uh, the way it is. I mean, it does mean that we have to work hard to maintain our reputation. I mean, when, when we started out, there was another publication called Global Water Report, which had been published by the Financial Times. And I think it had then been sold on to Platts. And when we started out and we tried to sell subscriptions, people would say, oh, Global Water. Yes, we get Global Water. Um, and uh, they would be subscribers to Global Water Report and not Global Water Intelligence. And nobody had heard of us. And it was incredibly hard. And we just spent a long time sort of banging our heads on a brick wall to try and get some kind of recognition for this. But I think this is the thing, that there are not that many people who are prepared to talk about water and money. There's a, a number of people who will talk about technology, but they won't necessarily get on the markets and sort of finance angle of it. There are a whole load of people who will talk about saving the world. But again, they won't 
talk about the thing which really matters, which is the money to save it. So, I mean, I, I guess this is it. I, you know, as I said, I started off in sort of uh, studying politics and economics, and that's really what the water industry is about for me. It is this sort of interaction of politics and economics. So to ask you a, a quite direct question here, you know, I had Paul O'Callaghan from Bluetech Research on that microphone to discuss his thesis on the dynamics of water innovation. To some extent, one could see Bluetech Research as a competition to global water intelligence. And to another extent, we could also say they probably don't address the same persona than you address. I think in the technology side, there are a number of people. I mean, I'd say that Isle Utilities is probably the leader in the sort of technology space. I mean, I think that they're probably bigger than both us and Blue Tech. I think that uh, there's also, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Bookie Oren, who we work with, uh, has a, a sort of a technology service of his own. And, you know, they're, 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 as I say, there are people like Joe Zubak, and, you know, there are a number of people who are technology pundits. But as I say, what we tend to be looking at it is from the sort of markets and money angle, rather than just this is a sort of super interesting piece of kit. And I mean, I guess the other thing to say is that we are completely sort of dominant in terms of desalination. And anyway, Tom Pankratz, who's the editor of Deepwater Desalination Report, is really the world's sort of leading pundit on what desalination-related or membrane-related technology is likely to work and what's likely to fail. I have a last question for you in this deep dive. We've went through some of the milestones of your 20 years journey on the JWI horse, if I might say so. But you have a lot of pivots and transformations that happened through those 20 years. So I would say that transformation is not only on your presentation as one of your key values, but somehow you're walking the talk. So now if you look in my crystal ball and you look at GWI in, in five or 10 years, what do you see? I have this sort of saying about vision in business that it's not just about seeing the oak tree in the acorn. It's about seeing the ship in the oak tree and the new world in the ship. You know, it is about having this vision beyond what you currently are to see transformation vision beyond. And we have gone far beyond the uh, original acorn that was the original GWI, which I bought back in 2002. I think, you know, we, we've transformed ourselves. We've grown into an oak tree. And I, I think that we are now on the verge of moving into the ship. And you'll have to sort of wait and see what that means. But at some stage that, you know, the ship's going to set sail for the new world. As I said, water is our thing and we'll, we'll always be on water. But there's, you know, a huge opportunity, not least because there's so much to do in water. You know, it isn't like we've solved water. You know, we've got, you know, SDG 6s to deliver and, um, you know, new challenges coming along with climate change and, you know, environmental protection and so forth. And there's so many different ways that a sort of communications and information business can have an impact on, on the speed at which these objectives are delivered. Which leads me to a bonus question somehow. Were you never tempted to have like a GWI investment fund? You're probably the, the most informed source in that sector. You have this unique positioning on the edge of water and money. 
So wouldn't that be an opportunity? We used to have have a partnership with Amman Advisors, and you know we we got involved with Resonance uh, Asset Management. I mean, I I was the person who advocated uh, Amman Advisors investing in that, and and you know we were partners in that. I think it's an interesting thing, and I think a lot of people are tempted by that. But personally, as an investor, actually, I'm not that much good. You know, I've tried it myself. I mean, I I have a portfolio. I only actually invest in water through the Pictay Water Fund. But the you know I uh, you know have ideas, but they never turn out to be any good. So uh, <laughs> I think I'm so counterintuitive in the way that I like to think that I just don't have that herd instinct that you need if you're going to be a successful investor. You need to feel the momentum in something, and you know I'm much more keen on challenging the status quo than saying, yeah, this has got momentum, it's going to carry on forever, just put our money in this and we'll be, go to heaven. Very clear. Well, I have to be cautious of your time, so I think that makes for a good close for this deep dive. Nevertheless, I have to tell you that over the past hour, we've been scratching the surface on many topics, so probably at some point in the future, I'd be really happy to have some sequels on some of those directions, which we just opened, like we just kind of opened the door and didn't go through. If it's fine with you, I propose to switch to the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. My first rapid fire question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I guess the thing I did with the World Economic Forum on the new models for water access, where we were actually discovering that, uh, you know, what were the economics of solving water for SG6G6. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Um, I'm not much of a salesman. <laughs> Is there something you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Probably publishing a print magazine. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? And people are going to listen to you for that one. I think that the impact of inflation is probably going to be the most important thing over the next two years or so. It's going to completely reshape the capital flows in the, in the market. I mean, there are other things, you know, obviously you know, around sort of climate change and so forth. But the single thing I think is going to have the biggest impact is actually the cost of money. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? Tell people to pay for water. And? Will you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite on that microphone? Uh, I don't know, Laurent Auguste, the uh, former marketing director of Veolia. He's now a consultant. Well, Christopher, I'm sorry I've been French to, to that extent. I've been using more time than what you had allocated me, so sorry for that. But it was a fascinating journey, and I would have so many sidetracks, which I could have opened again with the rapid fire questions. So I stand my point if you have some time in the future. We shall plan for a sequel. And it's been a pleasure. So talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.